some of them were kind of like, oh, Bitcoin had a mission and now that mission's lost because they used the ETF on it. It's like Bitcoin doesn't even know it has an ETF on it. Bitcoin is just Bitcoin. In this case, one country, their SEC and their court system allowed an ETF. A bunch of entities that are not affiliated with Bitcoin made ETF wrappers around it. It gives people one more buying access, one more kind of custody access, one more trading scaling scheme that's on top of it. But it's a global asset. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Welcome in, folks, to the friendly confines of the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. This week, Josh and myself, Dan, are joined for the third time by a macroeconomist and analyst that likely needs no introduction. The always insightful, brilliant, and balanced Lynn Alden. In this hour, Lynn wonderfully elucidates a variety of subjects. We cover topics with her, including why the Bitcoin ETF may be overhyped, monetary and fiscal policy, and the growing impact of fiscal dominance. What's going on in the reverse repo market and why it actually matters? How historically, technology is more impactful than politics? Why the fusion of speed settlement and scarcity in Bitcoin is a big flipping deal? and Lynn's patented move to escape stage five clingers at Bitcoin conferences. One quick reminder for those of you who do enjoy or prefer video, you can always access videos of these conversations on our Blue Collar Bitcoin YouTube page. That's linked down in the notes. Now, while the Bitcoin ETFs are expected to attract substantial capital, let's not forget what makes Bitcoin so empowering. And that is the ability to hold Bitcoin in its bare form. When it comes to settlement, you, not just a Wall Street firm, can and should be able to execute final settlement of this asset. To achieve that, you need to control your own private keys. Our recommendation for that task is the cold card made by CoinKite. It's Bitcoin only, ultra secure, easy to use, NFC enabled, can be fully air gapped, and it's compatible with the best in collaborative custody. Exclusively for our audience, you can use code BCB to enjoy a generous discount on cold card at coinkite.com. Alternatively, explore our affiliate link down in the notes for discounts on a variety of other badass CoinKite products, including the Block Clocks. Lastly, if you do plan to attend the Bitcoin 2024 conference in Nashville this July or Bitcoin Asia in Hong Kong this spring, you can use that same code BCB for a juicy 10% discount. Okay, sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Lynn Alden. Lynn, welcome back on the show. Thanks for having me back. Normally, don't start with the weather, but I think it's worth it today. Leaving the firehouse today, it was negative 14 degrees. Negative 14. Got the cabinets open, the faucets dripping, but it's pretty freaking gnarly here in Chicago. How are things in your area? Uh, so it's definitely colder today than it has been, but we've had a, a seasonally warm uh, winter here in, in New Jersey. And I'm, I'm pretty close to the coast, so that helps um, we get the sea effect uh, that kind of takes the edge off a little bit. So actually, the the past two years, this year and then the prior year, have been pretty warm uh, in the winter. Um, so I can't really complain. Yeah, we've been lucky up to this point, but we are getting a taste of the Canadian North right now. And it, it was like 40 degrees around Christmas time here, yeah. which is very unusual. Yeah, same. Yeah, same but we here. are getting it now. Yeah, we're getting the same the same pattern, but just everything's warmer. So it's everything's less bad. It, Josh, it's kind of akin to a quiet day at the firehouse. You know you're going to get fucked at night, mm. right? When the winter starts mild... You know, she's coming in hot 
after yeah. it turns the first of the year. And that's exactly what's yep. happened here in 2024. That's coincidentally what we experienced yesterday with like literally nothing for eight hours, 10 hour day where we just hung out, had brunch and then night, night falls. And it's just like the critters come out <laughs> and you just get banged up all night, an hour and a half of sleep interspersed with like picking up old ladies in the back, trying to sleep. And then another, someone pulled their oxygen out of their, t- just craziness. It was, this is the second one in a row where I'm like, I feel like a zombie right now. It's like that movie Pitch Black. All the monsters come yeah. out at, at the, the long night. Exactly. Yeah. It is uncanny, though, when it's a really, really quiet day, which we don't get all that often. But when it's a really quiet day, you know it's coming at night. It, 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 it never fails. It's unbelievable. And then the reverse, I think, is also sometimes true. Wouldn't you agree, Josh? When you get hammered during the day, a lot of times you sleep through the night. I feel pretty good about the day. Usually when we're just slayed all day, we don't eat lunch and didn't eat dinner at 10 yeah. o'clock at night. I'm like. Odds are pretty good, even though it's just like a quarter flip, like, oh, it came up heads, you know, five times in a row. The odds it's coming up heads again are the same, but somehow it works. I guess that the neighborhood got it out of its system. And so there's, exactly. o- there's only so many more people. We took all the frequent flyers to the hospital and we locked them up in an ER for the next 10 hours. Yeah. That's the plan. <laughs> yeah. That is what you do, Lynn. You, you got to have some kind of a reason to shuffle them to the hospital during the day and then you get a quiet night. Yeah. <laughs> Lynn, last time we saw you, uh, the weather was a lot different. We were in Los Angeles for Pacific Bitcoin. And one observation we made, I think we said this to you at a party, a little bit tipsy, which you probably could put together. Those old fashions were strong, by the way, at that place. Yes, they were. But you are a superstar at these events. And I think I cracked some joke in front of you, but I, I meant it. Reading into your life, 98% of the time. You're a completely normal human being. You could walk anywhere and nobody would know who you are. And you go to these, whatever, five to seven conferences a year, and you're basically Michael fucking Jordan. What, what is that like? How, how have you adapted to that environment? Because it really has to be shocking when you get there and people are just all over you. Like, what, what, what's this like? Fill us in. What Dan, what Dan is really saying is that he's very jealous. He wants to be Michael Jordan at these events, but he's just not quite... <laughs> gotten there yet it's bullshit he feigns he feigns like we get hundreds of emails a day yeah we get like three weirdos why aren't people more into dan from blue collar bitcoin why are they paying so much attention to lynn josh i don't get it (laughs) i don't get it either it it is weird because i you know i'm an introvert um and i i find a lot of things about my career kind of unexpected um and none of it was really planned um like i you know i mean i grew up doing math and science and stuff like that and my weakest subject was english and now i'm known for my writing primarily which is inverse of how i expected things to go like i had i had like a engineering career but then it's like the thing that really took off is like my research writing uh which of course it's it's not pure writing it's it's that it's writing about quantitative subject which is clearly where the the other part comes in but a lot of people do that so the fact that this the writing's taken off has been surprising and then the fact that i i do like on stage presence or, or interviews like this, um, you know, with my low charisma score, I didn't really expect that this to be something people want to watch. And so the fact that people do, I'm always humbled by that. And so I, I honestly say like a lot of people say I'm all, you know, I'm humbled by it's like a it's like a meme at this point, people are like, oh, I'm humbled by all the appreciation. But that's actually how I feel when I'm in a, a, like a conference and people want to take pictures with me or come up and say hi or something like that. It's a really humbling experience because you know, you're putting out content that people are reading, and it's a, it's actually a reminder that I have to always do my best. That I that, that I don't want to let people down. Um, 
And and so it doesn't mean never making a mistake, but it just means I want to always be honest. I want to always be measured in what I'm saying because a lot of people that that absorb that content in in various forms. And so it's you know not not just a meme or not just like a a, a saying to say that the the primary feeling I, I have in those moments is, is is humbleness. And you know when when you have you know like just like I like you said ninety eight percent of the time it's just totally normal like i don't think my neighbors know what i do um yeah and that's i like that um and but in a very specific event it's either it's either investing macro events or bitcoin adjacent events those are the two areas where there's a high ratio of people that that know me or people around the area know me and so that's i guess it's kind of the perfect amount because it's, it's i mean it's nice to you know ha- nope a lot of people in the industry um, and to get the you know the opportunity to to talk to other people in the space or to speak on stage, those are really cool things to do and and to go places and, and just have these experiences. Um, but it's also nice to be able to kind of turn that off and go back to you know the the real world and, and not always have that. Right. I think I understand what you're saying there. Like I, I feel like Dan and I almost soften the edges a little bit. What we say on this show is, I mean, it's what we believe. But I don't, I don't go as hard as I would in my own personal finances. You know what I mean? Like I don't tell people to operate the way I do because I don't think that's <laughs> honestly some of it is probably not as rational as I would like to believe it is. But I just don't want to tell people what to do with their money overall because I mean the reality is we're a couple of firefighters. We're not financial experts. We love to talk about it. We love to be on here and pontificate and talk with people like yourself. Um, but we're not the people you should be coming to for base level financial advice most of the time. We just got an email yesterday from a guy, and I'm, I'm curious, Lynn, if you must get this all the time. <laughs> he emails us and he's like, hey, I have $100,000 to deploy. What should I do? And I, I texted Dan. I'm like, can you believe this shit? Like, this guy wants us to tell him to do with what to do with 100 grand. Like, you know, we're just a couple of guys who just talk about finance. Like, we aren't financial advisors. Like, I'm not going to tell this guy how to operate with his $100,000. For all I know, that's all the money in the world he has. I'm not going to tell him what to do so he can come back and find my, me and my family when he loses all of his money because I told him to do something stupid, you know? Do you get those all the time? People asking you what exactly to do with their portfolio? Yeah, I do. And I, I steer clear because, I mean, there's, there's regulatory issues as well uh, for giving yeah. individualized financial advice. So any to the extent that I reply, I point out that this is not in any way individualized. It's just, you know, I, I have certain portfolios that people can look at for inspiration um, to then maybe, right. you know, see how they might want to tailor some of those ideas to their own situation. Um, and yeah, my generally, for example, my my portfolios are more conservative than what I personally do, because if I put a thousand hours into something, I'm I'm more willing to lean into it and take the consequences that that can come totally, from being wrong. Right. Whereas people, and they're your consequences. Yeah, they're no one else's. They're which no is one the else's. Important part. Yeah, and that that happens a lot in the financial world where people's personal accounts are more aggressive than their managed accounts. Uh, the same is true for like my my research view versus like what I'm actually doing in terms of like percent allocation. Um, because it's kind of like the, the research view is like what I view is kind of like a, a minimum allocation. And it's like, if you do research and want to go above that level on certain highly volatile assets like Bitcoin, then that's, you know, that makes sense for that person. But it's right. not like, I'm like, Hey, everybody should put this, this kind of crazy percentage into, into Bitcoin. There's also a thing where if you, if you get in at a certain point and then the level's higher, there's a difference between putting a percentage of your portfolio into an asset like Bitcoin. Uh, versus having that percent in there largely due to appreciation, 
Um, right. right. And, yeah. and so it's like you took less risk and, and you have more gains now. Uh, and so you're, you're playing with, with money that you've, you know, you've, you've already cut, you're playing with house money at that point. Mm. Yeah. Having talked shit about that guy that sent us an email, Lynn, what should we do with our portfolios? No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that. We'll, we'll soften this up for about another 45 minutes and then we'll, we'll go at that question at a bit of a tangent. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, one other thing about these, these conferences and you being famous that I'm curious about watching you at these parties and these events, you just, you're just getting smothered, right? And there have to be some weird, creepy, presumptuous individuals that are sort of clung on to you. What is your spin move? When you have a stage five clinger at one of these events and you think to yourself, I have got to get the hell away from this person. What is your move? Josh and I have a move. I'll tell you our move first. We're always together. This never happens to us, by the way. It's happened like once. If we do get caught in a conversation, even at the firehouse, I guess this is in play. You're stuck in a conversation. You can come rescue a guy. You can come in and be like, yo, bro, we got to go to the whatever. We got two people brainstorming. Do you have a move, Lynn? How do you, how do you exit? That's not what I do. I wait for them to make eye contact with Dan, and then I turn around and walk away. <laughs> <laughs> so you leave him hanging. Exactly. That's my, that's my strategy. For me, it's... Well, one is I'd actually find that in person, there's not that many issues. Um, like fewer mm. than you'd think. I mean, people generally are, are paying to go to these events. They're flying there. Um, you know, so there's like, you know, pe- people are, are pretty serious when they show up to these things. I mean, they want to have a good time, obviously, but they're, um, they're usually very respectful of, of people's boundaries, uh, what I find. Um, and, and so the, the weirdest ones I get are in digital form, right? So for example, I don't have Twitter DMs open. Um, uh, and then, you know, people can email me, but we, so we get weird, creepy, like digital reach outs all the time that we just kind of, our policies just ignore those. Um, uh, so those are where it gets weird in person. There's been very few outright weird interactions to the extent that someone's just taking up too much bandwidth basically at, at these conferences. I mean, usually I have a lot of things scheduled, uh, while I'm there. Um, so often there's something that I have to get to anyway. And I guess that my, you could make something up well, too. Yeah. That's your move. And I think yeah. my move is to pull forward, like how, 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 um, quickly I have to get to something. Like, oh, I have to get to this thing. I have to, <laughs> yeah. And so I just pull, yeah. I just pull forward that I have to be somewhere. It's perfect. Got to run. When you said pull forward, I was envisioning like you getting uncomfortably close to that person, like right in their personal space. Yeah, no, yeah, which, like, no. I got to get out of here. This no, is I just mean weird. like if I have something at one and, the, and it's, you know, 1145 and this person has been talking to me for a little, you know, it's just, it's just, it's becoming overwhelming. I'm like, ah, yeah, it's, it's 12 o'clock. I have to go uh, to this thing. You know, it's brilliant. Well executed. Dan, we have quite a question set, man. We have I know. to, I, we got to dig into I defer this, to you. I don't know where I'm stressed. Where do we start, Josh? You, you pick. You know what? I mean, there's so much. The two of us cooked up a lot here, but I, I'm interested in your takes on the ETF, and I think a lot of people are right now. There's a lot of angles to play this at, but I think, number one, are you surprised with the market action after the ETF? I kind of figured that either this was going to be one of... I had three possible outcomes in my mind. There was either A, we'd see like a $10,000 candle to the upside, B, it would be a $10,000 candle to the downside, or my least likely outcome in my mind was like status quo, like it doesn't really do anything. I thought there would be some aggressive action in either direction. It turned out I was totally wrong, and it was kind of status quo, and then bled off uh, for the like like few days afterwards. I haven't even looked at it today. Were you surprised by that outcome, or was that something that you kind of thought was the the price had already baked in? 
Yeah, this one I wasn't really surprised by for a couple of reasons. And I, I described the ETF as the most boring thing uh, kind of in Bitcoin at the moment, uh, which kind of caught some flack and some people were polarized in that comment. But basically... It's provocative. Yeah. Um, so, you know, basically the ETF providers, are, you know, a lot of this was aware, right? So it's, it's like they're, they're already lining up liquidity that they're going to need. There's going to be some exit from GBTC. Uh, there's going to be in you know inflows to some combination of the others. Um, so I, I had a really big range where nothing would be surprising if we had a five thousand dollar candle. Uh, if we had a big sell the news event, but the other the other kind of signal was there are so many people calling for either a god candle or a sell the news event. There was hardly anyone calling for choppy seats. You know nothing particularly remarkable. And so the fact that that's what we got is kind of the pain trade, where yeah. if you were shorting it. Um, you know, you didn't really make money off the short. If you were hoping for like, you know, crazy spicy action, the upside you didn't really get that either. Uh, and so the, whatever people are not really talking about is if you had to pick one, that's normally how things go. Um, but, you know, I didn't have high conviction that we'd have that sideways move anyway. It's more just like, for me, the this quarter of any, any specific quarter of price action is just noise to me. Um, the other thing is that... Um, there's a, a lot of the capital that's just dying to come into Bitcoin has found a way, right? Mm -hmm. uh, instead, what this does is this this normalizes the asset to some extent, um, and it, it provides a long-term option for, for some capital to start gradually moving in. But there's not a lot of people that are day one, just raring to go the second it comes in, that haven't already bought at an exchange or a broker or GBTC or uh, MicroStrategy. Yeah, they either bought a Bitcoin proxy or they bought Bitcoin, and so the idea that there'd be just like a, a like a ten billion dollars wanted to flow in in the first week, I think was unrealistically optimistic, and that that's part of why, um, like I actually you know in my in my research for example, I, I have not been writing a ton about the ETF. Um, you know, I kind of waited till we're pretty close to it, talked about it. Uh, my next report's going to uh, obviously update some of the things that have happened since then. But it's not been this like giant recurring theme of mine because it's just, in my view, it's not one of the key variables, even though it is a variable among many. How big of a deal do you think this is for Bitcoin in a longer time frame? Like one of the ways we think through this is if you hop out of the Bitcoin subculture, this is something that a lot of people latch onto. This being available in brokerage accounts and retirement accounts. We have a couple friends we can think of at work where this has already raised eyebrows and increased interest. I'm not saying it's it's caused action, but it's there. And if we do have other bull runs and interest grows and and the network onboards orders of magnitude more people, this is going to be an outlet that many, many people find interesting. Do you view it that way and think this is a really big deal for Bitcoin long term? Or are you kind of like, nah, not really? So I, I think being tied into the tens of trillions of dollars of managed assets is important. I mean, there you know, there's really tens of trillions of dollars managed by uh, uh, RIAs um, or kind of big bank like broker networks, and a lot of that capital literally couldn't get into Bitcoin, and so it's it's either stuck there because it's a retirement account or just because that's where the person wants it, and you know they might be open to putting one or two or three percent into Bitcoin, it just has not been an option because none of the vehicles have been kind of up to par. Uh, for those types of environments. And so to the extent that they're available, that is important uh, over a multi-year time frame. That can add billions of dollars of inflow, which has a multiplier effect, uh, especially when Bitcoin is very tightly held as it is now. 
And so that that is it's not like it's a non-variable. Um, the way I would probably put it is, and the way I put it in my research is that uh, it doesn't really affect my view of the direction of the next two years, um, but it, it can it can add more magnitude um, to the upside uh, than it than if these didn't exist. And so, for example, I I'm doubtful that ETFs are going to drive the next bull market, but I think that as that bull market materializes, that's that's another ease of inflow that could make the the, the bull market do better than it would if, if these ETFs did not exist. Um, and so it's, it's you know, money tends to chase price, ironically. So it's like, uh, I think that the next bull market probably comes from the same types of directions that the bull market, the prior bull markets came from, which is, you know, we went through this bear market, a lot of the fast money's out of, the, of, the, of Bitcoin. It's kind of gravitated towards those strong hands, people that are dollar cost averaging in, uh, people that just, you know, they, they're like listen to podcasts like this and they don't really plan on selling for the foreseeable future they're kind of locked in and so eventually you kind of get that really tight supply situation and then you get uh better liquidity conditions so i i've been kind of beating the drum for a while that bitcoin is very correlated with uh global liquidity metrics uh more so than any other asset i track um and it's also the inverse is true so if i look at all the things that are correlated with bitcoin liquidity is is arguably the highest so the like when the liquidity goes up, that tends to be constructive for Bitcoin price. But then it's especially so when you've been in a bear market for a while, and a lot of those loosely held coins have gravitated towards the stronger hands that are only going to come out with like a five x increase, pretty much. Right. Um, and as like a starting, like basically w- once you breach all time highs, when you start to get a little bit of distribution from those types of hands, um, and then also when you break all time highs, that's when you know, people in their RIAs are saying, like, why, why aren't we in Bitcoin? The ETFs came out months ago. What are we doing? And, and so then, yeah. you, then you can get some of the inflows. And that's where I think it could add to it. it it's certainly a constructive, positive variable. But it's, for me, it's not the key catalyst, most likely. Okay. Do you think that these ETFs are going to tame volatility to some degree? I, I think maybe because a lot of the people that are using a brokerage account versus like more of the YOLO type crypto bros that are just trading trying to you know trade the most volatile recent asset and switching out to doge or ethereum they're a lot more uh, i guess they're looking for volatility to make these day trades and stuff do you think that the etf holders are going to be more steady and thereby decrease volatility to some degree so i don't know if they specifically will but i do think that on on average the more widely held something is the more the less volatile it, it can be uh, and the more, because the more liquid it can be, right? So when Bitcoin's small enough that like FTX, like reapothecating, you know, one and a half billion dollars worth of Bitcoin can really mess it up. Um, that's you know that when that kind of thing can happen, uh, it, it's going to move price more. Um, whereas if it's if it's five times as widely held, if it's ten times as widely held, um, then there's fewer entities that can play games and, and kind of really mess up the price. Uh, and it's it's more the assets more diffused. In portfolios that are not like quote unquote crypto focused, uh, that all get liquidated at once, basically. And so, you know, to the extent that people have it as a slice in a portfolio and rebalance it from time to time, whether it's the ETF or other vehicles, I mean, the ETF is now the most convenient vehicle for that. That you know, there's there's also other ways to do it. Um, that that should, in theory, have a dampening effect on volatility. It doesn't mean I don't think we're going to have a big bull run and then a probably a pretty big drop. Um, but I think it could start taking the edge off. Uh, in either direction, because you know, if, if Bitcoin's way up and and it's pretty widely held at that point, um, you know, that can rebalance it back down to the downside a little bit. So, if you look at some of the 
you know, th- this past bull cycle was the first one that had like a rounded top. Um, uh, the other the other ones all had these like crazy illiquid spike tops, right? And this mm-hmm. was the first rounded top. Uh, and unfortunately, the the bottom was not as uh, benign. There still was like a big kind of collapse because the F, you know partially because of the F, FTX thing. Um, but I think that that's I would assume that's the norm going forward. Of course, Bitcoin can always surprise, but I, I think that you know <laughs> yeah. that those spikes are a sign of kind of a, a less mature asset. And then as as it reaches you know bigger amounts and and things like that, you you should expect more more of those kind of rounded rounded type of price action unless something extreme happens to it unless you know you have a sovereign debt crisis in a major country or war or you know you, you, things like that what concerns you about the etf what risks do you think confront the potential bitcoin mission the real substance and importance of this innovation with an etf do you think those risks exist do you think they're overblown what's your take there i i take the under on those risks um that's part of why I think it's boring. I take the under on the upside, especially immediately from the ETFs, and I also take the under on the risks from the ETF. Um, and so, and large part of that's because there's there's already like six hundred thousand coins in GBTC, uh, and so, yeah. so we're seeing we're seeing coins come out of that bucket, diffuse into some of these other buckets. They're all at you know most of them are Coinbase anyway, uh, except for the Fidelity one, and I think a couple others are at Gemini. Um, and so you're seeing a, a diffusion of that. I think on average, we'll see a net inflow. Uh, but as Bitcoin gets more expensive, um, you know, the amount, of ca- the amount of coins that can be captured in ETF, uh, even though the dollar amount might be higher, the number of coins is, is still pretty hard to get a lot of coins into ETFs at this point. Bitcoin already had 15 years of distribution. Ironically, if, if the ETF came out back when the Winklevi wanted it to come out, I mean, they had the foresight to want it. Um, but if it came out then, Maybe there would be more concerns about a very large percentage of it being kind of held in these giant honeypots, but now it's had 15 years to get out there. It's out in the wild, so it's hard to tame at this point. So I, I don't really have concerns around that. Um, uh, you know, there's always there, there's certainly concerns for people that are in those custodial environments, but I view it as less existential towards Bitcoin itself, and I'd further phrase it as um, it, it was inevitable. So if Bitcoin can't withstand a, an ETF. That never really mattered to begin with, um, and so the, I see a lot of and, it, and it's and to go after the the Bitcoin critics here, some of them were kind of like, oh, Bitcoin had a mission, and now that mission's lost because they used the ETF on it. It's like Bitcoin doesn't even know it has an ETF on it. Bitcoin is just Bitcoin, you know. Some you know one in this case one country, uh, their SEC and their court system allowed an ETF. A bunch of entities that are not affiliated with Bitcoin made ETF wrappers around it. It gives people one more buying access, one more kind of custody access, one more trading scaling scheme that's on top of it. But it's a global asset, um, and and it just it's an open source network. And so, I, yeah, I kind of view that as relatively irrelevant, other than the extent that obviously, you know, if you do control a lot of coins, you have some power over how, like, say, hard forks turn out, for example. Um, yep. And and so it's not that concentration doesn't matter at all. It's just that there's already you know there's already some degree of concentration. Luckily, it's not that high, and I don't think the introduction of the ETFs really changed that. It just kind of shifts around where it is. To pull on that thread, there, I assume you agree that if we play out a future where big money managers have a meaningful percentage of available supply. I don't know how I define meaningful, but increasing and meaningful, 
that proof of work is really, really important. A, you agree with that. B, for someone that's uninitiated, explain why that dynamic might be important in a future environment. Yeah, so I think I think proof of work is critical. Uh, so much that I put an entire chapter of, of um, uh, broken money in, into proof of work uh, specifically. Um, and so the main one is that ownership tends to concentrate. Um, this, that's kind of been a theme throughout history. Is that um, you know once you're in a position where you have assets, it's generally easier to get more assets. Um, and the opposite tends to be true. And so an asset who that the more you own of it. The, your your ability to censor transactions is now much higher uh, is not ideal um, because you can get that kind of exponential flywheel towards concentration and capturability. And so the fact, and, and also, I mean, if, if assuming there's no major technical bugs, then uh, holders never really have to sell. You're getting income from your holding. Um, and so the more you have, the more you earn and you, you get that kind of just flywheel towards concentration. Whereas, um, any sort of commodity mining in general is just a really hard business, uh, low margins, volatile. And so Bitcoin miners are not really different in that regard. They have some other differences, obviously, but not really in that regard. And so they have to, they have to sell, in many cases, a lot of the coins that they mine. Um, there's no, like the biggest Bitcoin miners in the world have like four and a half percent of the network. Um, you know, there's a handful that are like that size and there are a bunch that are in like the one, two percent range. And then there are a bunch of smaller ones, uh, out there. And so the, the mining side's really decentralized. Um, and unlike staking pools, like, uh, mining pools don't custody the machines. So what really matters is that mining decentralization, not less so the pool, you know, I think pool centralization still matters, uh, but it matters less than people think. And so the fact that uh, these, you know, if Grayscale controlled 600,000 Bitcoin and that lets them determine what gets into the next block, that's not ideal. But as it stands, they have very little influence other than helping determining the outcome of hard forks and things like that. Uh, and I think that so that that distrib like that distrib uh, distributing of ownership of like power is really important. It's kind of like how the U.S. has three branches of government that all kind of serve as a check on the other one. The nodes, the miners, and and then the economic holders all kind of serve as checks on each other, which I think is really important. And the other point that the part that I don't hear enough about proof of work versus proof of stake is just kind of like recoverability. So when a proof of stake, like basically proof of stake is like RAM, right? When you think of two types of computer memory, this is an analogy I use a lot. So like, you know, there's there's certain types of memory that is primarily meant for long-term storage, that if the power goes out and goes back on, all that data is still there. Whereas there's other types of memory, volatile memory that's much faster, but that when it powers down and powers back up, it's, it's wiped away that memory. And proof of stake is kind of like the latter one, where if the network gets disrupted and goes offline for any reason, there's no unforgeable history of the ledger. Um, it, it, it's, a, it's circular logic. So basically the... The, the validators are determined by how many coins they have that are validating, but who holds the coins is determined by the ledger, right? And so mm -hmm. you have that circular feedback loop that gets, it, it's like a perpetual motion machine that works as long as it's working, but then if it breaks mm -hmm. for any reason, uh, you kind of, you need like manual decisions to, to determine where we're going to start from. Whereas if you, if you, if we just had like a solar flare and like it just kind of shut off all of our electricity for a week and Bitcoin just shut off, uh, when that starts coming back online, nodes can reach out and without having any sort of like group consensus on where the chain 
should best start from, all those nodes can rebuild where they should start from because there is an objective answer out there, uh, which is different than proof of stake. And I think that that's when you're talking about money at the size of like a global reserve asset, that kind of feature is really important. And that, that kind of inherent recoverability, that lack of circular logic is really important because you have that outside variable of real world energy input that went into making the chain, you know, th- th- that there is a correct answer for what is the heaviest chain out there that follows the consensus rule set. Great answer. Well put. Yeah. I, before we get off this ETF topic, I just one more question before we because I know people want to know the answer to this, at least your opinion on this, because there's no real right answer. Your portfolio, your public one, you had a holding of MSTR MicroStrategy, and you had a holding of Grayscale. Obviously, this Grayscale is converted over to an ETF, but the fees are relatively high compared to the others. What is your plan for your reconstruction of that Bitcoin portion of that portfolio? Yeah, it's a good question, um, and it's going to depend on on tax status, right? And so, if 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 you have GBTC in like a retirement account. Now, this is not individualized investment advice, but it's how I would think about it. Is that I I would switch over yep. to one of the cheaper ones, um, because you're you're just you're giving up fees for no good reason. Um, right. I, I personally, and also if you have a very large holding of ETFs, you might want to split between, for example, the Fidelity one and then one of the others that uses Coinbase. So at least you you distribute your custody among two different custody providers. Yes, we were talking about that the other day. Yep. Yeah, and I, I like Fidelity. I mean, they've been in the space for like a decade. They're 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 kind of like the based ones of, of the of these launches, so I, I just kind of incline towards fidelity. But in general, yeah, you want to go towards one of the lower fee ones. Um, if you have a if you have it in a taxable account, you have to be careful because if you have really big capital gains and you sell it and buy another one, uh, it's kind of like you know penny wise pound foolish because you're saving yep. on fees, but then you're getting killed on on this kind of taxable event. Um, and so you have to be careful about that logic. Um, uh, and so it, instead, it's like if you're planning on trimming, if Bitcoin goes up a lot in the next bull run, may, if you basically if you're going to sell anyway, that's the time to maybe exit some of these less ideal vehicles. Um, whereas if you're in a tax-free account, you can make that decision more quickly because the you know there's really no downside from doing it. So that that's how I'm going to approach that is to let people know that depending on where they're holding this portfolio, some of the options make sense for others. Uh, uh, certainly for any sort of tax, tax-free tax account, retirement account, uh, I, I would hastily want to switch over to the, the cheaper ones. And personally, I like the Fidelity one. What's your take yeah. on MSTR? What are you, you, you going to do with that allocation? Uh, pro- probably reduce that one. Um, that I've been using that as a diversifier because I didn't fully trust GBTC. I wanted um, a little bit of distributed risk uh, towards another vehicle. Uh, given the limited options available uh, prior to the ETF launches, um, I think it's 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 a great company. Uh, the fact that you have fixed um, non-callable leverage attached to Bitcoin has been really well played. Uh, their their treasurer, the one who actually handles the tactical decisions on you know wh- how they're going to optimize their holding, um, uh, uh, you know I I know him and he's like he's really sharp and so they they've executed that really well when. When when the equity gets expensive, they're like selling more equity and buying more Bitcoin. When they had uh, options earlier, they were issuing that debt. So I, I think they've managed that really well. They've actually de-risked their balance sheet by issuing this this more equity. I think over time, that premium is probably going to decrease because now there's pure ways to express a long position. 
Um, I still think it's it's somewhat rocket fuel because you have that kind of fixed amount of leverage attached to it. So if someone's really bullish on Bitcoin, that 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 could still outperform. Um, so it's not like I think that MicroStrategy doesn't serve a role anymore. I, I just think that it, it's it's earlier use as a Bitcoin proxy is is now somewhat diminished by the ETFs, and I think they understand that. I think that basically they, you know, they they've been a really important vehicle in, in time they're at, and they permanently improved the value of their company by playing that role at a time when people needed it. And so now they've, even if people switch over to the ETFs, that doesn't change the fact that MicroStrategy has a really big Bitcoin hoard now. It might grow more slowly than it did because of the arbitrage opportunities that were available, but they still have it and they still have a good software business. And so I, I think they made all the right moves pretty much. Mm. Yeah. So we have... Um... I think I wrote this question is basically the way I view this year, there's three catalysts and two of them are, well, the ETFs already happened. The happening will happen in April. And then the third one in my mind is the Fed's behavior. And that's a huge one. It seems as though they have, and they've paused for the meantime and they have plans to uh, lower interest rates in the near future. How much is that? I mean, as you said earlier, the money supply is a huge factor for Bitcoin's performance. Do you think that the the Fed is going to provide the dovishness that we need to see this thing perform? So I think the the Fed is only one input of many into global liquidity. Uh, in the U.S., the big inputs are the Fed and the Treasury together, and then globally, I have to consider other major powers like does China stimulate or not stimulate as well because uh, they're they're a huge entity. Um, and and so the Fed is one input there. Um, and to some extent, I think that it's not fully in the Fed's control. I mean, basically, when there are liquidity events uh, in really key markets like treasuries, um, they kind of lose out to the fiscal side. Um, and so it's, it's less about what the Fed decides to do. It's about the timing of things that will force them to do certain things. One of the reasons um, I've been a little bit more cautious on my statements throughout 2024 is because I'm not sure if liquidity is going to be really good or not this year. And I, I, I'm. I do think that Bitcoin is likely to be relatively correlated with liquidity. It doesn't mean that, you know, on a week by week basis it does what liquidity does, but it's it's you know, so so far, at least in this in the you know, in the really in the kind of first third of Bitcoin's life, it wasn't really correlated to anything because like if one doctor decided to buy Bitcoin that day, that just that moved the price. It was small enough, you know, or if someone else sold, that would mm -hmm. move the price. But ever since Bitcoin became big and liquid enough, kind of in the in the second half of its life and really kind of the second two thirds like the, of its life, um, it's been it's had that correlation with liquidity. And one way to think about that is that when you're comparing the Bitcoin and dollar exchange rate, you you have to take into account what both of those monies are doing. So Bitcoin is the growing harder emergent money. The dollar is the big incumbent money, and uh, it you know the dollar goes through periods of hardening and loosening. On net, it's it's kind of structurally loosening. That's what it does. But it goes through these kind of periods of hardening. Um, and so when it's doing that, it, it's pretty rare that Bitcoin is going to do well in that environment because it's getting pushed around by this this bigger money that you know is, is the unit of account for much of the world. Um, and so I, I kind of have a very mixed outlook for liquidity this year, or at least the first half of the year. Um, and so I... I Whenever I, when people ask me what I think Bitcoin's going to do, I keep giving kind of a two-year view because I, I think I have better visibility on what happens in the two-year view. I think that liquidity is probably higher two years from now than it is now. But over the next six months or nine months or 12 months, 
I don't really have a firm view on that. Um, and, and so that's why I'm, I may be a little bit more cautious around my statements than a lot of other Bitcoin bulls are um, because nothing between 30000 and $120,000 would, would surprise me because one is Bitcoin's that volatile and two, liquidity is that uncertain uh, in this calendar year, at least, at least in my opinion. And I, and I try to track liquidity pretty closely. Um, so you have, to, you, know, you have to take into account what is the dollar index going to do compared to other major currencies? What is China going to do? What is the Fed going to do? What is the Treasury going to do? Uh, what are banks going to do? Right. So there's, there's, you know, there's multiple variables that feed into that. Um, so we've been in a liquidity consolidation for quite a while. And they, those can only last so long because the system is designed such that it always needs more liquidity. Uh, and so that's, that plays into a lot of my view of why the next two years are probably going to have another upleg in liquidity. And we are off the highs in liquidity, which occurred back in late 2022. Um, so it's not that I think liquidity is going to be terrible. It's just, I don't, I don't know if we're going to have like a big vertical move in liquidity, which if that were to happen, I think we'd get that big vertical move in, in Bitcoin most likely. But I don't know if that happens this year, next year, maybe between the two years, some point. Um, and so that, that's kind of how... And if you look at the halvings, I mean, the halvings are relevant for Bitcoin, but sometimes the bull run is like, you know, happens right around that time. Other other times it's delayed for a period of time. Uh, and that's in large part because the actual timing tends to be more correlated with that liquidity component. Um, the halving plays a really big role in terms of, I think, why it has higher highs and higher lows. I think it plays a really big role in the bear markets like two years later when not that many not that many people want Bitcoin anymore. Uh, and there's there's still Bitcoin coming to market, but it's less because of the halving. Um, that that helps set the higher floor. Uh, the kind of the hodlers of last resort have less supply to absorb. Um, but in terms of timing around the halving itself, I, I think liquidity is is you know generally a bigger catalyst. You know, I I think there's a lot of wisdom in your uncertainty. One thing Josh and I talk about a lot is that even in our investing lifetime. You have to be a lot more nimble today than you even had to be, we'll say, five, 10 years ago. There are perils in being overconfident and even in some ways overthinking your portfolio. The system's more fragile than it's been in a long, long time. It's more manipulated than it's been in a long, long time. And for that reason, and you've, you've said this a lot in your writing, you have to be ready and on your toes to move in, in directions that you weren't expecting just because the system is more unpredictable and volatile because of increased fragility. I think one sort of evidence of the mayhem is what you highlighted in your January newsletter, which is that in terms of liquidity, you have major players going in opposite directions. You have the Fed going in one direction, you have the Treasury going in another direction, and you have highlighted the sort of the primacy of the fiscal side. Walk us through the, those two different moves in direction and then what the implications are for investors. Right. So there's monetary policy and fiscal policy. Um, and when the two go in opposite directions, usually fiscal policy wins, but it's not always a bumpy, it's not always a smooth ride. It can be very bumpy. And so monetary policy refers to basically what the Fed's doing or in, in another country, what, what that central bank is doing. And that basically is what are short-term interest rates set at because uh, it's, it's essentially controlled interest rates. Uh, and then also balance sheet. What is what is the changing of base money doing? Because uh, that affects liquidity. Uh, so those are the two variables primarily that the central bank has to play with. Whereas the fiscal side is more about 
how much is being taxed and where it's being taxed from and how much is being spent and where it's being spent and then specifically the delta between those two. So how large is the deficit and who primarily is receiving a lot of that deficit? Um, and they can go together. Like for example, during the pandemic lockdown stimulus response, you had both. You had the, the fiscal authority spending a lot of money, but as they're issuing trillions of dollars of bonds, the Federal Reserve is creating new base money and buying a lot of those bonds. Uh, and so you're, you're printing money, but then you're also getting it out into the people's pockets. Um, and so, but ever since we started to get inflation, the Fed's been tightening up. So they're saying, okay, we're raising interest rates and we are uh, reducing our balance sheet. But the fiscal side is still, you know, they're not doing like stimulus checks anymore, but they're still running a structural, largely demographics driven deficit. And what makes it complicated is that as the Fed raises rates, it loses the fiscal side even more because it raises their interest expense. And someone, someone out there is receiving that money. You know, it could be the foreign sector, it could be banks, it could be insurance companies, it could be uh, upper middle class or wealthy people that have a lot of cash equivalents. Us money, money markets. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So people are receiving that money, um, and that that has some propensity to be spent. It's not as rapidly spent as stimulus checks uh, tend to be, but it, it is income to, to various entities that can go out and and spend it, uh, and so. The, the way that I keep describing that is so back in the 70s, you know, like money creation comes from two sources, either that monetized fiscal deficits or bank lending. And the central bank, the monetary policy is mostly designed around controlling bank lending. So things that encourage them to lend more or things that encourage them to lend less uh, or the other way around, people to borrow more or, or borrow less. Um, and so in the 70s, most of the inflationary money creation we had the majority of it was from bank lending. And that was in large part because the baby boomers were entering home buying years. Um, so there's a lot of demand for credit and there was a lot of provision of credit. And so you had a lot of broad money supply growth at a time when we also had, you know, we were, we were running fiscal deficits. We also had oil shortages, things like that. But the biggest component was that money creation, the lending. Um, and so uh, we had very low public debt to GDP. Uh, and so when the central bank raised rates very high, you know, kind of the classic Volcker, you know, the well-known historic Volcker moment, um, that put a big break on bank lending. And although it did increase the fiscal deficit because it increased the interest expense of the government, it was less, the, 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 the downward push on banks was bigger than the upward push on the government because the government debt was so low. So if you raise interest expense on 30% debt to GDP, that's only so impactful. Whereas if most of the money creation is coming from bank lending and you, and you kind of slow that down that that the monetary side is winning there on the other hand if you fast forward 40 years and now debt is 130 percent debt to gdp when the, when the central bank raises rates on one hand they do slow down the bank lending we've seen that in the data bank lending is kind of a stall speed right now it's, it's very slow uh, but now there's just more and more interest expense pouring out into the economy from the government and so that magnitude is roughly equal right so so kind of the slowdown in bank lending is roughly equal to the increase in interest expense um and if you fast forward even further to get to like a J japan situation uh if they raise rates it'd probably be outright pro inflationary because the fiscal side would be actually so much bigger than the loan side mm. whereas we're more in that middle range right now which is partially why their tools are not as effective um and that 
that kind of is the hallmark of an end of a major cycle, like a long-term death cycle. So, you know, in this kind of 50-year feed experiment that we've had, uh, you know, we had a de- the, the 70s were unstable, right? Because people were trying to come to terms with this new system. Uh, then they kind of stabilize it in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, and then you had kind of two years of, you know, stock market bull run, uh, kind of just very stable situation. But then that ended with the dot-com bubble. It all kind of blew up into this giant equity bubble. It started to all kind of fall back down. Uh, then you started to get stimulus to kind of re-stimulate things, and it kind of pushed up a big housing bubble. And then that started to kind of unravel, and that kind of hit the core banking system. And then they kind of pushed it up to the sovereign level, right? So e- each one's kind of like, you can picture like a fish getting eaten by a bigger fish, getting eaten by a mm-hmm. bigger fish. And now it's now it's the whale. Now it's like, it's it's all the way towards the top. It's at the sovereign debt level and the currency level. Um, and so that's where you kind of hit the end of the road in terms of places to push it up. Uh, but you're not end of the road. You're not at the end of the road in terms of like the the consequences of having pushed it up that far. That can play out for a period of time. And so right now, I think we're at the stage where there's just higher background fiscal deficits, which on one hand can be stimulatory, uh, especially if you're on the right side of them. Uh, but on the other hand, that's a, that can be a higher background level of inflation that's pushing up against the various disinflationary forces we have, like AI and tech in general and and things like that. We have this ongoing background fiscal push, and the central bank can't do anything about it. Um, you know, they can try to push back a little bit, but they can't really do much about it. Uh, and to to most part, what they can do is slow down bank lending, so at least you don't have both happening at the same time. But again, you can only do that for so long. Um, and so I think that that's kind of the dilemma they face right now. And right now, it's fiscal that's in charge. Mm. We like to on this show define things at a basic level that a lot of people hear but don't fully understand. And one thing that's been barked about a decent amount in macro is this reverse repo dynamic of commercial bank liquidity being left sort of unharmed because of the draining of reverse repo. For people that don't even know what those terms mean, take it back to the start like you're talking to a couple firemen and define terms about what this shit is. I feel like I've I've read what reverse repo is like 10 times, but I don't feel like I actually understand it. I still, I'm, I'm just, I feel like I'm always spinning my wheels on this topic. Shout out to James Lavish. He's published one piece in particular I can think of. I'm going to find it and link it. He does a very good job of in short form enumerating and explaining repo, reverse repo and the impact. Let's do that right now. And, and just sort of unpack this dynamic and how, how big of a deal you think it's been and how much longer it can, can continue, Lynn. Sure. And it, it's funny because people say Bitcoin's too complicated. People were never adopted. It's like, if you only know how mm-hmm. complicated the dollar system is under the hood. <laughs> totally, you know, people, totally, people, people use totally the dollar. Seriously. They don't know what reverse repo and repo are. Uh, they don't know the difference between fiscal and monetary policy necessarily. Um, they don't know what the bank term funding program is. And, you know, it's all this stuff's happening under the hood. Um, and so it's, it's, it's funny how that works out. So... To, to do reverse repo, it's best to start with repo. Uh, so repo is basically if if you have treasuries and you need cash, you can use your treasuries as collateral to get cash, like a pawn shop. Uh, yep. and, of, and of course, the treasuries are you know nominally very safe, and so many um, lenders are willing to to make that at you know that's a that's a very kind of easy trade to make. Um, and there are times though where there's not enough liquidity in the system. And so the Federal Reserve directly does it. So instead of uh, other financial entities doing it for other financial entities, sometimes the Fed itself will come in 
and say, look, if you have treasuries or mortgage-backed securities and kind of similarly safe collateral, you can deposit it with us and we'll give you cash for you know a, a day or two weeks or whatever you need. Um, and so it's basically, a, a, from the Fed's perspective, it's a risk-free loan because if, if it's somehow defaulted on, they get the collateral. Um, reverse repo is the opposite, which is, it's a really good problem to have, which is I have so much cash. What am I possibly going to do with all this cash? Uh, and so the Fed says, well, we have, we have T-bills if you need them. You could, you could park some of that cash here and we'll, we'll, you know, we'll give you some of our T-bills and then it will reverse that in a little bit. Um, and so, uh, the reason the reverse repo facility exists is the Fed did so much QE during the stimulation years, 2020, 2021. They basically just, they, they shoved liquidity up until there's literally nowhere else for it to go. Banks actually, they have the, um, supplementary leverage ratio. Uh, and they were kind of running into these thresholds of like how much liquidity you can put into the system. It's kind of like in real life, if you drink too much water, you can actually die. Uh, and with banks, it's not that bad. It's basically like you, you get a so much liquidity that a bank cannot accept new deposits um, because they have too much deposits relative to their their capital. Uh, and so they just they, they start saying, look, go somewhere else. We don't want your deposits right now, which is the opposite problem. Most Mostly banks want deposits. So that they got basically up to the filling point of the system. They're just completely full. Um, and so money started to spill into this reverse repo facility. Uh, and especially money markets. All this money poured into money market funds. And there's just not enough for them to buy. Uh, there's only so many T-bills out there. There's only so much like short-term commercial paper out there. And the risk there is that that much capital chasing relatively few T-bills would risk reducing the T-bill yields very low. Um, and, gotcha. and yeah. cause it increases their price. So in, in right. bonds, price and yield are inverse. So if a lot of capital chasing T-bills boosts their price, lowers their yield, and it could push that below what the fed wanted their lower bound interest rate to be, cause they were trying to be hawkish and they don't want T-bill yields to go below their federal okay. funds rate. And so they say, instead, look, if, instead of trying to all that capital get in T-bills, you can, you can use our reverse repo facility as an overflow extra cash can just come in there and you can borrow T-bills and you can get a, a T-bill-like rate. You can get a, a rate that's slightly above our federal funds facility, our federal funds rate, I mean, uh, so that you don't push T-bills super low. So it's kind of like a, a, a technically a hawkish move. And so $2 trillion of extra capital flew in there. And it's in large part because you're holding money markets and there's only so many T-bills for them to buy. So there's a big chunk that's just sitting in the Fed's reverse repo. And from from the money market's perspective is very safe because your counterparty is literally the Federal Reserve. Um, and so now as that goes on and then the Fed starts doing quantitative tightening, um, that's now a source of excess liquidity, excess cash is sitting there. And that cash would happily buy T-bills if there's more T-bills to buy. It can't really buy T-bonds, long duration bonds, because money markets are not really meant for that. Money markets are meant for very short-term types of interest-bearing assets like T-bills or very short-term commercial paper. Um, so for a while, the Treasury was issuing um, T-bonds, and that's, that's coming out of bank reserves, basically. That's like, you know, as, as the Fed's doing quantitative tightening, and as more and more T-bonds are coming to market, that can cause a liquidity issue. There's just not enough cash that is available and wants to buy these T-bonds. But the treasury started saying, well, if we just issue extra T-bills, there's all this cash on the sidelines 
to just is would be happy to buy about two point one trillion dollars worth of T bills. <laughs> so they they you know when they had to refill their treasury c- cash account, they did it mostly with T bills. And then even after that, uh, you know, in, in the fourth quarter of last year, the market expected a certain ratio of T bills and T bonds that they were going to fund their deficits with. But the treasury surprised them by airing more towards T-bills than they expected, which allowed more money to come out of reverse repo. It's basically just feeding all that demand that exists for T-bills. And the reason there's a lot of demand for T-bills is because if you're earning 0% on your Bank of America you know, savings account, um, but you can earn like 5% in money markets, um, that's where a lot of the kind of the spare capital goes. If it's not needed for working capital and it wants that kind of you know risk-free kind of short duration um, uh, exposure. It wants T-bills. And so right now, there's just a lot of demand for T-bills. And so basically, what it's, it's like a void of capital that's built up. It's outside the system. And so as the treasury issues T-bills, they can pull that money back into the system. So uh, it's, it's been offsetting, roughly speaking, the Fed's quantitative tightening. So they're destroying okay. base money, but there's this like extra void of base money that's like been pre-made, and the treasury is just kind of pulling that back in. And, and roughly offsetting it. What happens when it runs out, I think is the main question a lot of people have. What, what, what's the next step there? I, I think you can risk getting something that looks like 2019 repo spike, uh, which, is, okay. which is, I mean, it was a mild enough thing that most, most people who don't work in finance didn't know what happened. Uh, if you worked in finance, it was a pretty major event to watch. Um, but the, it was like a fire that just kind of burst and it was put out immediately. Um, and so basically what can happen is uh, you can get a situation where there's just not enough cash willing to buy T-bills or things adjacent to T-bills. So back then, there was the opposite problem. There's too many T-bills coming to market. Uh, the Federal Reserve was doing quantitative tightening. Uh, uh, bank cash reserves were near their kind of lower end limits of regulation and, and you know, kind of just general liquidity needs, things like that. And so there just wasn't a lot of excess liquidity around the system. And so when it, when a bank would come to the market and say, "Hey, I have T bills. I I want to use. I want to like get cash. I want to I want to use this as collateral." A lot of banks were like, "Sorry, bro. Like we we don't really have a lot of extra cash." And and then so the repo rate can spike, uh, where it, it becomes like a crazy number overnight because like right. almost nobody has spare cash anymore. And then. The problem is a lot of hedge funds were using repo as a funding source to buy treasuries. So that's a very adjacent market. It's like it's it's near the core of the system. The repo and reverse repo um, is very is very near to the system, kind of like treasuries. Uh, and so the Fed jumped in the next day and said, "Okay, we will provide repo if you have T bills and you need cash, come to us." Uh, and then, the, but the problem was underlying that there was just too many T bills relative to amount of kind of cash on the system. And so the Federal Reserve then had to come in and start doing quantitative easing to basically buy some T-bills permanently. Uh, and that, that all happened right before COVID. That wasn't in response to COVID. That was in, that was in the quarter preceding COVID. So that was, yeah. it was just a mechanical thing. So you could have a situation where the Fed has to quietly end their balance sheet reduction and either go back to neutral. They, they could do facilities. You know, the, the repo facility can handle some liquidity. Things like the bank term funding program is basically a generous type of, of repo. Um, um, or they can just go back and say, we're going to grow our balance sheet roughly in line with GDP going forward. Uh, so we're not doing like emergency rapid QA, but we're no longer tightening anymore. I, I think that's what you get 
not necessarily like the day the reverse repo facility runs out, but as as that facility runs out, you start getting more risks for a liquidity spillover. And that's what you'd probably see their Fed mm-hmm. respond to. Um, I do think that probably the, the reverse repo facility is going to decrease a little bit slower than it has been because the treasury general account's been filled up. Um, and and so I think that it's it's not necessarily going to go all the way down to zero by like March, uh, but it is it is one of the key numbers that I watch every two weeks, roughly speaking, um, to see what is the, what is the descent path of this because that's kind of the timer to look at for when the Fed has some tough decisions to make. And if you look at recent news reports, the, you know the minutes, the the Federal Reserve meeting minutes, they have been talking about the reverse repo facility, and some of their officials are saying that maybe we should start thinking about tapering our rate of quantitative tightening so that we don't drain that facility too fast. And so then we can extend the time that we that we reduce our balance sheet for. So that the same amount of magnitude is spread over a longer period of time. And, right. and so we can start seeing more rumblings about that. That was a great explanation. I followed everything in that, but I do have one question. And it's from quite like five minutes ago. You said that there are actually um, rules or mandates about how much cash, like the cash ratio banks can have. It makes total sense to me that banks wouldn't want to carry a lot of cash because it's not performing. It's not paying them any interest. But why would there be a mandate or like a a deposit limit? Why would they cap that? Right. So there's two different parts there. One is how much, how much like cash does the bank have as a percentage of their assets? So right now there's officially no reserve requirements. That's one lever that the Fed can do. They can say you have to have this much percentage of your deposits or this much percentage of your assets in cash reserves. That's one thing they can do. Mm, right. right now, they're not doing it, uh, but instead they have a capital requirement. So you have to have a certain percentage of your assets in, in very safe capital, things like reserves or T-bills. Um, the other side of that is the supplementary leverage ratio, which is basically that kind of a bank balance sheet 101. They have assets, they have liabilities, right? Most of their right. liabilities are deposits. You know, so your asset is the bank's liability, right? That's that's their liability mm-hmm. side. Then they have to have more assets than they have liabilities. Otherwise, I they're see. otherwise okay. they're insolvent. And, that makes a lot of sense. And just yeah, and just so one, so their most liquid asset is is reserves at the Fed. That's literally base cash. Then they have things like T bills and other kind of safe assets. Then they have like longer duration loans. You know, like a mortgage loan or you know, corporate bonds, they have, they have other kind of higher yielding, either less liquid or, or riskier assets that have a chance of default. Um, and their assets exceed their liabilities by some amount. And that's a, that's, that's a tightly regulated amount. They have like minimum thresholds for how much their assets have to exceed their liabilities, basically how much capital they have to have, that net difference. And just overall, if they get more and more deposits, um, and they have not built up capital enough, like so that that difference between assets and, and liabilities, they could have to do things like stop paying out dividends and retain some of their profits so that they um, increase their capital to make sure that they're meeting those like leverage requirements. Uh, even though ironically, if they're if they're just storing it as base cash, it shouldn't really be an issue in theory, but it just starts running into some of those rails. It kind of cancels itself out. Like yeah. you're holding the cash that you're out of liability in, so it should theoretically. Yeah. The, the simplified view I have of this, it can kind of cancels itself yeah. out. And that's why the Fed. So there was a year during it was like March 2020 to March 2021 when like they were doing emergency liquidity conditions. They suspended the supplementary leverage ratio, so there were still other requirements that banks had to do. 
But basically, they said, "Look, don't worry about this. Um, you know, buy all the buy all the treasuries you need to. We'll buy. We'll keep." They, the Fed was rapidly buying treasuries from them, um, so some banks would briefly go below that ratio, um, but it wasn't really a big deal because that's not the risky part of their stack. Um, but yeah, those 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 are just kind of extra safeguards that are in. That's actually another option they can pull if they want to extend until they do quantitative easing again. Um, they could reduce or temporarily eliminate the supplementary leverage ratio. And that all that basically does is let banks do QE on the Fed's behalf. It's still a very similar effect. It's just where where it ends up. They, they can they'll, they'll thread the needle, no problem. They got this under control. Yeah, the thing that's interesting is there's just so many angles. I liked your comment about people that think Bitcoin's too complex, and you get into the weeds on some of this stuff. And there are a lot of people listening that go, "Oh, this stuff. I hate this stuff. It doesn't matter." Well, it does matter. Like this is the this is the water we're swimming in. This is the tank we're in, and when somebody poops and the water doesn't get filtered, uh, it can be harmful to life and health, and uh, it's worth paying attention to. In the last 15 minutes, I say we pivot to broken money. Uh, that's going to be a that's going to be a tight squeeze here. But uh, I'm going to start with a quote we've thrown out a couple times on here already. You say politics can affect things temporarily and locally, but technology is what drives things forward permanently globally. What does that statement mean and why is it significant? So I, I think a lot of monetary history understates the importance of technology, which is why I wrote, I mean, this is basically a history book about monetary technology. Uh, and of course, it touches on the present future as well. Um, but a lot of the buildup is how we got to this. And it's really about how money's evolved due to changing technology. Uh, whereas if you look at most history books, it's like, okay, this president did this at this time, and this country did this, and it affected this other country this other way. It's like human decisions. And of course, all those things are relevant for timing. But to that quote, I mean, they largely affect a certain area for a certain period of time, whereas technology changes things forever. Like, you know, when they invented refrigeration, that's a permanent addition to the, you know, humanity now, as long as we don't have like an entire societal collapse. Uh, refrigeration is now a thing that exists and it spreads everywhere. Um, and it's just, it's not going to be undone. Um, and same thing with electrification. Same thing is with the invention of the computer and, and things like that. These are permanent yeah. um, things. And so, you know, to the extent that over the past century or so, there've been a lot of people complaining about the current monetary system and they've had very little traction because they've not, you know, you can, you can, you can challenge things politically all you want, but the way you win decisively is to invent something that just, it's just obviously better and it's permanent mm. and it just spreads everywhere. And so basically, um, the reason I focus on that a lot is because the invention of Bitcoin really kind of changed the power of the argument. I mean, before Bitcoin, if you looked at what Austrian ec economists were saying or people like that, it's kind of like you're lobbying the government to adhere to your view. You're saying, hey, you, you should back your currency by gold, or you should um, clamp down on fractions or banking, or you should, you know, do this or this or this. And good luck, right? You're 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 up against a very big, right. big tide of incentives that are not aligned with your vision. Uh, and so you're kind of screeching into the wind. And it's I mean, it's it's valuable work because someone had to write all this literature and and you know present these alternative views, but it's just it's not surprising that that's been a minority view for a long time. And what Bitcoin does is it, it gives them a tool to kind of opt out and, and build a parallel system. It's not, not, not to say that everyone who adopts Bitcoin has to have those economic views, but it does mean that people who have those economic views 
now have like a silver bullet. Like they've now invented the equivalent of refrigeration or the equivalent of electrification. That there's an actual alternative system. We, you know, Bitcoin doesn't necessarily obsolete private banks, but it arguably obsoletes central banks. It's you know they they've kind of set this clockwork central bank in motion, which is to say that it's gold and Fedwire combined. It's it's both the underlying unit, and it's a way to in a decentralized way transfer ownership of that unit. And that's now this like clockwork decentralized base that exists and things can build on top of it. And that's extraordinarily powerful. And even if one day Bitcoin fails somehow, the idea still exists. Someone yes. could someone yes. could try again. Um, and yeah. so this is now Pandora's box is open. This is now an idea that exists. Um, and people can fall back to it over and over and over again until it catches on. And you know, for decades, people tried to build something like Bitcoin. Uh, Bitcoin was the one that so far has been kind of wildly successful. Um, and by concentrating around it, it, it just kind of changes the incentive structure. It, it changes which arguments hit harder because instead of asking the government to do something, you're saying, no, no, you guys keep printing, have fun. Uh, uh, I'm just going to go over and work on this other system instead. Yeah, just slyly introduce something they can't stop. Exactly. And then to the extent that yeah. you're still lobbying the government, you're like, well, you know, don't make it illegal. It's like your your ask is now much lower, and your options should they even do that kind of approach are available. You could you could go to another jurisdiction. You could do civil disobedience. You could sue and say this what you're doing is unconstitutional. You have more options, but it's a much easier ask to just say leave me alone, uh, or you know, I want to make it hard for you not to leave me alone, or basically I need you to go ahead and re re rechange your entire monetary policy. It, it changes where the default argument ends up and it's, it's right. technology it reminds me of the quote that science moves forward one funeral at a time everyone's got their pet theory and the thing that they want to proliferate the thing doesn't move forward as quickly this really applies to politics as well i mean in a literal way when we have like 70 or 80 year old boomers that are in charge of this thing that just don't seem to ever relinquish power to somebody with some fresh ideas and blood but that's a digression here Transitioning to risks, you know, it's one of our favorite topics on here. And the section of your book that covers risks is outstanding. I know when you were on a time before you mentioned you plan to write a piece on it, and I'm sure a lot of the nuts and bolts of what you had prepared for that went into the book. You cover a lot of things. Which of those you highlight in the book do you think require the most serious consideration? Let's maybe pick two or three that, that actually concern you about Bitcoin in, say, the next decade or, or beyond? So I think, I think there's no one that stands out in particular. It's the combination of them, which is not the fun answer, but basically uh, it's more the takeaway that it is not a risk-free asset. Um, there are still challenges ahead for it. Um, so that's, that's the main takeaway. If I rank risks in terms of near term, you know, for example, I, I mentioned you know, computational risks, including, including quantum computing, for example. So I would not place quantum as something I'm concerned about for the next five years, like this, this, this decade. And it's more of that long-term theoretical. Uh, whereas near-term, um, I think that um, probably the two biggest runs for me are, are supply chain risk. Um, so I talk about basically how concentrated semiconductor manufacturing is, uh, including ASIC. Uh, manufacturing. And so I think in general, people overstate mining pool centralization risk, and then they understate foundry risk, uh, especially okay. given that Taiwan is the biggest um, 
foundry out there, and that's uh, geopolitically challenged at the moment. Um, so if governments were, if you imagine how governments would go after Bitcoin, um, supply chains are one of the angles they can go after. Um, another one, I talk about government bans. Um, I think, a, I think a, one of the biggest headwinds going forward is not that governments will make it illegal, but that they will increasingly make privacy uh, hard. Uh, sometimes illegal, depending on the context. How much depends how much they can get away with, um, and that can somewhat extend to self custody, uh, but especially private self custody and private mm, transactions, yeah. and and doing anything that facilitates that. Um, and so I, I still think it's the case where the technology is on the side of the builders, right? Because you can, going back to the Hayek quote, you can build sly roundabout things that they can't stop, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be super easy uh, to do that and that they're going to catch on super quick because I think there's going to be frictions on the builders, frictions on the users, frictions on the right. on the scalers um, that make that, that workable and easy and things you can do without thinking about it. So I think the, I would say, in the near-term sense, the ongoing war on privacy is probably the biggest risk. It seems like the the ETF makes it much more difficult for them to come at a direct attack at it yeah. because they've basically sanctioned it to some yeah. degree. But yeah, what you're what you're describing here does seem a lot more logical. Like they would attack it at the tertiary aspects. Yeah, and we're seeing that with that, that the recent FinCEN um, proposals have been along these lines, and there are there are counterattacks. I mean, you can you can uh, sued the government and argue that the Bank Secrecy Act is unconstitutional. There's a decent case for that. Um, you can you can argue that these FinCEN things are unconstitutional. There's multiple angles to pull, um, basically to say that some of these things violate the Fourth Amendment and things like that. Um, but they you know you, you they kind of need to be well capitalized uh, attempts, and you also have to have clear reasons. It's 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 harder to sue something uh, when there's no tangible person being harmed by it. Uh, and then the person being harmed by it, you, you have to have a sympathetic person. Uh, you can't have like, oh, this person, this like person, uh, you know, is, is, is accused of using a mixer, but oh, they happen to be a drug dealer, but we can forget that part. That's, that doesn't, that doesn't, right. it's not likely to win. Whereas if you have like, literally this, this person was just trying to use transactions privately or build, build open source software and got arrested and things like that. And the, and the person's got a pretty pristine record. Uh, and then there's a well-capitalized lawsuit to go after government overreach. Uh, that's a that's a defense against this. But I do think that overall, there's going to be ongoing pressure against privacy. And, and a way to think about that is that, you know, in the 1800s, there was, you know, governments couldn't even think about how they would enforce anti-privacy laws, for the most part, on money, yeah. on everyday transactions. It's not even an option. But then in the telecommunications era, and as banks coalesced into banks and central banks, and basically everybody's using this big centralized banking system, and everybody was working in factories and getting regular paychecks and things like that, they could just centralize, surveil that whole system. And then they built everything around it. They built the entire like income tax dynamic is based on the premise of ubiquitous surveillance to enforce that. Um, and all of the anti-money laundering and anti-terrorism stuff, it's all built on ubiquitous surveillance. And what makes it possible is that the governments only have to go after the institutions. All they have to do is tell the banks, this is what you have to do. You have to report these transactions. You can't do these transactions. And the, the banks are like, yes, sir. Uh, they just do that without with, with, with pretty easy compliance. Where it gets hard is that now there's peer-to-peer -peer money, 
right? So now the government has to try to apply that on the individual level, which has orders of magnitude more enforcement points and is therefore orders of magnitude more expensive to enforce should there be a large number of people that don't want to comply with that or that it, yeah. it, it, how would how would the government even know how many people are not complying so these mm. so that it's so it, it's basically an attempt by the government to keep the level of surveillance that they already have with the problem that they have to now apply it on the individual level and so i think that that's the friction that does not go away easily it's probably going to be court cases it's going to be you're going to have the Senator Warren's the world really kind of pushing for that. There's going to be other senators that are going to be pushing back against on it and using that as like, I'm different than Senator Warren because I believe in, you know, freedom for privacy or whatever. And you're going to have kind of intra-government feuds, but then also um, government versus people feuds because, you know, it's just, I think it's an ongoing thing. And to play the pessimistic side, if and when that privacy pressure comes it's amazing how many people just don't care. I yeah, mean, most people a, yeah. in the environment today will comply. Yes. I know you may be on Noster around a bunch of freedom-hungry, cypherpunk-minded Bitcoiners, but that is not how most people are wow. Most people just want to take their kids to school, make a decent living, drink some beer, yeah. and they, they're not worried about government overreach. And so this is, this is yeah. back to the point we hammer all the time. Narratives matter. And hopefully Bitcoin continues to bolster this narrative of in invasive government measures in the digital age. Yeah. We're going to let you go here in a second. I'm going to throw this, maybe this is our last topic. You talk in the book about how there's really only one time in history in your estimation that a weaker money beat out a harder money. Why was that? And how does Bitcoin potentially unwind that? Take that as, as briefly as you want it here to close. Sure, that ties into the technological theme, how that kind of just trumps um, other other factors. Um, that basically for thousands of years, uh, most of our technological progress kept eliminating softer commodities from being good money. And so we kind of rose up the hardness stack until we landed on gold and pretty much only gold. Um, so for a while, you could use silver and gold. You could use shells and you know cocoa. You could use all, all sorts of things. And we kind of systemically eliminated uh, all the softer stuff landed on gold. Uh, also, our technology um, made it easier to kind of move around ownership of gold without moving around gold. And the invention and specifically the deployment of the telegraph over wide areas uh, really kind of sealed the deal there, which is that now um, you could teleport ownership of gold claims around the world basically instantly, whereas you know physical settlement still only happened at the speed of gold. And so for the first time, uh, you had a situation where speed mattered uh, a great deal. If, if, you can, if there's some types of monies that are inherently more telecommunication-based, um, they have an advantage now. And so the world became increasingly reliant on bank ledgers uh, rather than the physical exchange of assets. And then with that, they also became increasingly reliant on central bank ledgers, right? How do banks coordinate across borders? Uh, how capturable are banks by central authorities? Uh, so w whether voluntarily or involuntarily, a lot of the banks coalesce into central banks and even multiple central banks coalesce into like super central banks, like the reserve currency banks. Uh, like if, if two countries don't trust each other, uh, they go through a third party, which is either Britain or, or eventually the US in terms of kind of their, their clearinghouse. And so more and more co coalesce, co like uh, concentration happened 
And then you had like liftoff. Basically, the governments could just say, you know what, we're going to drop gold from our system. And gold was not strong enough to push back against that. You know, right. if people said, no, keep using gold, they're like, well, how? I have to, I have to, I have to pay this person on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. How am I going to do it with gold? I have to go through this banking ledger. Uh, and so for the first time, speed mattered in terms of the underlying unit of account. And so governments and central banks and banks had a lot of authority to say, no, no, instead of using gold, this is our money now. And they got away with it because it's the, the competitors weren't good enough um, to override all that. And so even though gold was only increasing in supply at 1.5% a year, and the dollar was increasing in supply at 7% a year, that gap was made up for by how fast and convenient the dollar was, especially with backing of the government and things like that. Uh, and what Bitcoin does is Bitcoin says, okay, well, now we've had another century of technological progress. And so now not only can we you know, make the claims transfer at speed of light, we can actually build a settlement layer that transfers final value or you know, for the most part, final value at the speed of light as well. Uh, and so you no longer need, you can hold a unit and you can transfer uh, ownership of that unit without relying on credit uh, to someone else at you know, the speed of telecommunications. Uh, and so we, we've had this kind of century and a half where you need more and more abstraction to keep up. And this is, you know, almost every kind of mo- like banking technology uh, over the, not just the past century and a half, but over multiple centuries, almost all of it has been uh, an increased efficiency at the cost of centralization. It mm. makes it easier for centralized authorities to kind of smooth over frictions in money. Uh, so the printing press and analog encryption and all these kind of just various techniques, uh, and eventually the telegraph itself, just made centralization able to solve so many money type problems in exchange for handling all your control uh, and and things like that to the central authority. And what Bitcoin does is the first one that kind of makes things more efficient, but with decentralization. Um, and so it, it kind of breaks that multi-century trend that's kind of always been marching one direction. And it says, well, now individual entities now have this kind of decentralized central bank and decentralized unit they can coordinate among themselves and they can build on top of it without having any sort of central authority control it um and it's you know these these units can move around orders of magnitude faster than gold can and they're not just claims for something else they're actually the unit itself is what's transferring ownership uh and so i think that's just a, a a hugely kind of important thing which is that you know Definitely. We, we've been in this century and a half of like a weird technological gap between instant settlement, instant transactions, but not instant settlements. And we've, we finally have both now, uh, roughly speaking. Uh, and so I think that people, people have recency bias. They always take into, into whatever has existed. They think it's going to always exist. Like if, you, if we went to our great grandparents and we were like, I, I know you're using gold and silver coins now, but in a couple of generations, they're always going to be using paper and money is just going to be not backed by anything and printed by the government. It would sound insane. Uh, and then now we're in that era. And if you say, you know, here's this Bitcoin thing, uh, you're, it's, it's very easy for people to say, that sounds insane. Like, you know, we're always going to be using exactly what we use now, or maybe just what we use now with very minor uh, refinements on how efficient it is. Um, these transformative things can happen largely because of technology, uh, just changes, incentive structures, and you know, it takes a lot of time, but it's, it's just a very powerful force. For the first time in history, speed meets scarcity. Yeah. And it's a big 
fucking deal. And even if Bitcoin doesn't work, as you said earlier in the episode, Lynn, the idea, the concept, and the workable solutions that have been demonstrated over the last 15 years are something you cannot put back in the box. Yeah. Thank you for your time. Greatly appreciate it. You should just record these things and have AI spit out an essay. It's, it's <laughs> unbelievable to just unleash you on these topics and have you basically write with your mouth is essentially what you do when you go on <laughs> podcast, Lynn. I mean, it's unbelievably <laughs> impressive. Josh, we don't even need to tell people where to find her. No, they know. <laughs> they know. They'll, they'll email you and ask you exactly what to buy and when. Great. <laughs> Thanks, Lynn. Yeah. Have a, have a great rest of your day and, and enjoy it not being negative 14 where you're at. Yeah, I definitely am. I'm, I'm glad I live, uh, you know, in definitely a warm part of the world. And it's it's even not that warm, but I, I, I certainly feel better about my place knowing that it's, it's at least not that cold. So thank you for having me on. And uh, hopefully this discussion was helpful for the listener. That'll do it for this week. Wow, is it a pleasure talking to Lynn. We've always said about Lynn Alden that what makes her so special is not just what she thinks, but how she thinks. Let that be a reminder to each one of us. Study, mold ideas, reach conclusions, but do so with humility and always keep an open mind. Strive to think more in probabilities and less in certainties. If you are digging this show, you can do us a legitimate favor by taking two minutes out of your day to like, subscribe, or leave us a review. And if you aren't earning free sats to listen to this, you should be. Check us out on Podcast 2.0 apps, our favorite of which is Fountain. Take it easy, and we'll see you hooligans next week.